I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the Billboard Charpy Podcast. Really happy to have one of my favorite artists, Suzanne Vega. Hi. Welcome. Thank you very much. You're wearing a, a winter hat already. When you came in today, we're taping this on uh, October 25th. Is it is it winter already, Suzanne? It feels like it's winter. Well, it feels a bit nippy out there, and then technically it was a snood. Um, <laughs> a snood is like a uh, a knitted um, tube that you put over your head. Uh-huh. Very fifties. Um, so I'm it's kind of a cross between a hat and a scarf. Twenty seconds in, I'm already learning a new word. <laughs> I like the word snood myself. Yeah. All right, that's my our new word of the day. <laughs> and uh, here's here's a, a question uh, I had. Uh, this album came out only two years after your last album, uh, mm-hmm. Tales from the Realm of the Queen of Pentacles. Yeah. That's your, if, if my count is correct, it's your quickest gap between albums since 1990 and 1992. Is that correct? Yes. To what do we owe that pleasure that we didn't have to wait so long this time? Um, funnily enough, uh, it might be that my daughter is grown and out of the house and uh, at college now, yeah. um, because that other gap <laughs> happened before she was born. That's right. Um, so there we see a pattern. Um, so I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not blaming her, but I'm just saying that, um, uh, there have been other things taking up my time. Uh, the other thing is that I started my own record label right. in 2009. So, uh, I was working on the close-up series, in between um, Beauty and Crime and Tales from the Realm. Uh, and so I was kind of getting a feel for what it's like to own my own record label these days. Um, and now I, I, I've sort of got it, I think. You know, it's up and running. It's making a little bit of a profit. Um, so I can now set my own budget and set my own schedule. And as much as the music industry is changing, we're artists... On, on a levels aren't even putting out albums. Yeah. Uh, like uh, the Chainsmokers, number one on the Hot 100, they've even said, uh, we're not sure we even need to put out an album. Well, you can just I'm put out sure a single anytime. I'm sure people don't but, but need it's, it's, to. I would think it's different for an artist like you with... I love like the, the CD format. Right. I, I love the vinyl format. I think it's... Uh, I'm a person who likes to know what the artist intended. I like all the artwork. I like putting it together. I like seeing the lyrics. I like 
seeing the sequencing and doing the sequencing, to me, it's it's really the whole thing. So I'll probably continue making CDs until I until I'm not around anymore. But uh, to me, it's why not make it as artful as possible that, every time? Does that mean uh, two years could be the new schedule, or every every six months a new Suzanne Vega album? <laughs> now that we're on this, well, new let's schedule? not get crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about the six months thing, but maybe in a couple of years, I could see myself coming out with another album. Sure. All right, let's let's talk about this album. This is a really uh, interesting project. Uh, you premiered the play Carson McCullers talks about love five years ago, but mm-hmm. your uh, your your love of this artist and your uh, fascination goes back uh, from what I've read uh, more than thirty uh, about back to your thirty college years, days, right? Yeah, thirty yeah. years. Um, one thing that I guess hasn't been made clear is that um, this album. Um, is a preview for a new play okay. that still features the old songs and some new songs as well. Okay. So this new play, which is called Lover Beloved, <laughs> An Evening with Carson McCullers, uh, will be produced next year sometime. Okay. The announcement is coming next year. There'll be a world premiere of this new play. So it's not that it's referencing the old play from 2011. It's a preview of the new play that's coming. Gotcha. Um, so, but yeah, I've been working on this uh, idea for a very long time. It started as a class project in college. I t- was taking a uh, musical theater ensemble class uh, with my great teacher, Shirley Kaplan, and she gave us uh, an assignment saying, come in, dressed as someone in the arts who's no longer alive, and be ready to answer questions as though you're doing an interview. And I'd seen photographs of Carson McCullers, I'd read one or two pieces of her work, I bought the biography, and I fell in love with with her, with her work, her persona, everything about it. Um, And I ended up doing a small half-an-hour play for my senior thesis back then. So it's always been my dream to finish it in in the, uh, the way that I felt it should be finished. Right. I didn't feel I achieved that in 2011, so that's why I'm hoping the third time will be the charm. And where where was the 2011 play, and, and how often did you do it? Oh, it was at the Rattlestick Theater. Okay. It was great fun. It was It's a 99-seat theater in Greenwich Village. Okay. Um, it ran for six weeks. Um, I loved it. It it was great. Um, it I wasn't satisfied enough with the play that I had written to continue doing that play. I wanted to do something that was a little more classic one-woman show, something a little more like the Bell of Amherst. Um, what that was was nothing like that. So um, that's why I've redone the whole thing. But now the music is out before the final version. Yeah, uh, 10 songs are out. Uh, the final play will probably have more like 16 songs. Okay. Yeah. Why put out the album uh, so much ahead of time? That was a mistake. <laughs> you know, we don't always control uh, our destinies as much as we want to. Um, when when we uh, recorded it, we thought there was going to be a New York production last spring oh, okay. of the play. And then we realized, no, that wasn't going to happen. Then there was going to be an L.A. production this week in October. Okay. Uh, that was going to be, so we timed it around that. And then uh, what happened was we got this great offer from a great theater, not in New York City, that wants to do a real world premiere. So they asked us not to sell tickets and not to invite press to the L.A. Uh, version uh, of production of the show. And then the lead girl who was playing the part um, uh, got a part on a uh, TV show Ah. and wasn't able to do. So all signs pointed to (laughs) 
okay, well, we're going to do the world premiere next year. So we're a little ahead of our house. All right. Here. Well, this is this is quite a timeline from from when you first uh, became enamored with Carson McCullers. And at this point, honestly, I feel like I have all the time in the world. I mean, if we, if I've been doing this for for thirty years, another year of a delay is not <laughs> going to um, kill the project. Right. I, I, I did some reading because I I wasn't um, as up on her her really interesting history. Of, mm-hmm. um, but it was one of the things that really uh, has has drawn you to her. Uh, there's a quote you you, you have uh, where you talk about her uh, quote empathy for the outsider. Is that yeah. something you really identified with? Yeah, I did, and I do. Um, sure, I um, grew up in East Harlem in the '60s. And I spent five years there as a kid, um, and the rest of my time on the Upper West Side, and there were very political times, and I grew up in a half-Puerto Rican family. My stepfather, who raised us, was raised me, was uh, Puerto Rican. And uh, eventually, uh, I was told that I was not Puerto Rican. I suppose I would have figured it out uh, at some point, <laughs> since everybody else seemed to know way ahead of me. Um, so that was one reason why I sort of felt like an outsider in my own family. Right. I was the only one with another father, and I didn't know this father until I was in my late 20s. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons and resonances with her. Yeah, and you said she uh, was ahead of her time as well. I think she was. I really do. I think some of the reason that she hasn't gotten the attention, the sustained attention that Harper Lee has gotten, is because her writing is a little more complex and it's a little more uneven. And it involves all kinds of sticky, messy things like sex and sexual gender and um, sexuality, homosexuality, uh, bisexuality. And this is not stuff that we associate with Harper Lee. Harper Lee was just clean, pure civil rights. You know, the good guy wins. Bad guy, you know, I can't remember what happens to the bad guy uh, in in To Kill a Mockingbird. But um, it's simpler. It's a simpler story. Um, Carson was messy and weird and uh, public um, in a very private, shy kind of way. Uh, So I think if she had been alive today, she would be more understood. She would be more embraced. And she was embraced in her lifetime. She was beloved. People really loved her, and they marked her... uh, They marked her passing with hundreds of people at her funeral. They understood her spirit then, even if she herself was not always understood as a person. Is that the uh, artistic side of you that's drawn to all those complexities? If uh, just a, a very simple person maybe isn't as interesting to the artistic mind? I'm sure that's some of it. And some of it is an actual relationship. I mean, even after death, I f- perceive and feel Carson McCullers to be a kind of dark, needy presence. Um, and I'm attracted to that. And I feel I want to help. Um, so in some ways, it's symbiotic. It's not so much – I do identify with her to some degree, but it's also a um, – I've always been sensitive to sort of kids in my immediate area. I grew up the oldest of four kids. And yeah. In the 60s and 70s, we were not as vigilant about watching over our kids as we've become. Um, so I, I feel like I'm always sensitive to people in need. And um, so this has been a dialogue with Carson McCullers over time. Um, I sort of love her and uh, want to give her a venue for her spirit to to express itself. And I'm perfectly happy to serve as that. It, it's a kind of freeing... Uh, experience for me. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic, as 
far as I know. <laughs> Not a chain smoker. Don't have those terrible uh, health problems that she had. Um, I'm very careful with what I reveal to the public. And she was a lot freer um, in her mind and in her art. And that's attractive to me. And so I really enjoy playing the character in a way that I don't always enjoy playing myself. Right. And you did the play you did five years ago. You starred in that? I started in that, yeah. But you're not going to be in the production that we think is going to I've been asked to do the production, yeah. which I'm really happy about. Um, this time I crafted it so that it could be done by another woman, a one-woman show, or it can be done by two women, and a younger woman for the younger Carson in the first act and an older one for the second act, or it could even be done by a transgender uh, of either sex, uh, either male to female, female to male. Um, could be done by that. That's my dream, is to have a transgender actor, actress play right. the role eventually. And even in the second act, if we could get someone who actually had some of the disabilities that she actually had, if they can still act and sing, that would be exciting to me, to see that represented on the stage. So that's my dream up the road, is to give this away. I'll do it myself for the uh, premiere, but eventually I'd like to see all kinds of people exploring this doing yeah, when I was reading uh, before this intro I, I didn't realize and I, I, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of your history having been a fan for so long I, I didn't know you were up for some movie roles opposite Tom Cruise in the 80s I, <laughs> yes. I didn't know this whole side of you yeah well, uh, I didn't uh, – this is not something I went after. Uh, for a moment in time, as you remember, I was really hot and sort of, you know, uh, up there, you know, in, in the 80s. All and those charts. Say, uh, yeah, all those charts. And so people were saying, oh, let's have her read for this, read for that, read for this. So I would get a call and say, do you want to come and read? Uh, which I did, which I found fascinating. So it wasn't like I was out there trying to get roles. It was more that people were – throwing names around and mine would come up. So I've read for some pretty fascinating roles. And uh, strangely enough, prostitutes and nuns seem to be the repeating <laughs> theme of my non-acting career. <laughs> so it sounds like it could be an album title. Here. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> All other people have a weed to claim Except for me and my own name I belong to be one of the songs uh, on the new album, uh, We of Me, it's uh, it's the single, uh, sort of uh, whatever we call it, yeah, single yeah. nowadays, it's, sure. it's the video. Um, having listened to the album, that one sounds more like the sound we probably uh, associate you with, the folkier sound was there uh, was that consciously are not you at thinking, all no it wasn't i <laughs> need to put i need to put a focus on no uh, no not at all uh in fact people have been saying oh this is a real return to form this is the sound that we know of hers and i'm like really right. this has banjo and ukulele i really don't remember ever <laughs> having used that not on the first album certainly not in the second um so i'm not sure what they mean maybe it's the it's sort of short sounding. phrases it's folky sounding and it's kind of upbeat it's got a major key which yeah. i guess luca had right um so no this was a song i wrote overnight we needed a moment in the play back in 2011 where me and the two musicians on stage uh, would get together and we had a little sing-along um, so it's something I literally bashed out overnight I said Duncan please I'm desperate send me something he sent me something I did a little tune over it we threw it into the show like the next day probably the day 
the guy came down from the Times to review the show. <laughs> so that's how raw and new it all was. Um, and to my surprise, it started to get applause after it was like a showstopper. Yeah. Everybody, it would um, everyone would clap after that song. Um, so I was like, okay, great. Um, but what mattered to me was that I used the language from the member of the wedding, um, and that's that's what I was trying to do. Just illustrate that moment in that in the in the play, uh, and it's turned out to be. The single, as we call it. It's also uh, in some ways uh, similar to Luca in the sense that Luca is such a happy sounding song with really serious lyrics. Yeah. This is a happy little sing along song. But when you read about what the lyrics are about, it's it's not a typical situation. It is not a typical situation. Um, The member of the wedding, uh, the song comes from the member of the wedding. The member of the wedding is about a 12 year old girl who uh, is sad because her brother's getting married to a woman, and uh, she feels herself kind of homeless and situationless. Uh, she's on the brink of becoming a woman, but she doesn't belong anywhere. So she decides, unbeknownst to anybody else, that she's going to join the wedding and go with them forever. And this ends very badly. Um, but in that moment when I'm singing it, uh, it, the song takes place just as she's had the idea, and she sees this as like a solution to all of her problems. Um, so that's that's what the song is about. In the play, it actually illustrates Carson McCullers' tendency to create little triangles wherever she went with her husband, uh, Im- more emotional than sexual. It's not really about, you know, having... You know, it's not about swinging uh, <laughs> couples. Uh, it's really more about the emotionality of, like, creating a family right. uh, wherever you go, which is what she did. And for people listening to the album, it's not like uh, We Have Me is the only one that has the, the quote, traditional Suzanne Vega uh, sound. To me, it's it's the songwriting that carries you uh, through uh, the narrative of your career, each album. And there's songs like Anne Marie and uh, the title cut. They have hooks. They sound. It, it's it's your one of a kind voice. So it's uh, it's it's your music, and you've always you've always thrown curves at us. After uh, Solitude Standing, you you uh, a couple years the nineteen ninety two album yeah um, it was a folk slash industrial yeah album, yeah ninety nine point nine Fahrenheit degrees yeah that was so much fun working on that uh, yeah. album. I, I I don't know. I have a very curious mind, and I like to play. Um, and I kind of figure what is the point of writing something that everyone else has already written. Uh, I will probably continue doing that, you know, forever. It's my way of having fun. I just read that uh, 1990, the follow-up to uh, Solitude Standing, the big album with Luca, uh, yeah. Days of Open Hand, which I, I really like that album. I think there are some some great songs on there, Tired of Sleeping, uh, yeah. Pilgrimage, a couple of your, your best songs. You, you said you felt pressure, though, following up. So much pressure. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um, we felt so much pressure for the follow-up. Uh, we had a big, huge budget by then and a very intense schedule. Um, my manager at the time, Ron Fierstein, had decided that Anton Sanko and I really knew what we were doing and that we should produce the album ourselves, uh, which was on the one hand a great vote of confidence, but on the other hand was terrifying. And we had we had, had Brian Eno, who lined up <laughs> to do, you know, yeah. asking to do it. Wow. And we said, no, no. Uh, and we decided we would do it as though we were Brian Eno, which I, in retrospect, I'm like, why didn't we just get Brian Eno to do it? It would have been so much easier, uh, I, one assumes. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of pressure, and in the end, when I listen to it, I hear all the pressure of that time. Yeah. It sounds quiet. It sounds very slow. Uh, all the, the, the tempos are really, really settled. 
Um, and uh, I found it somewhat airless and kind of oppressive. Were you trying to write another Luca? Did you feel that pressure in the back of your mind? Well, I suppose Book of Dreams was sort of a tip of the hat, you know, sort of like, oh, we can do a single. Here, here's one. And, you know, of course, A&M listened to it and said, I don't hear a single. Uh, you know, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> and we were like, this is the single. How many yeah. more hooks do you want? Um, but they said, no, we don't hear a single. But uh, Ron Fierstein, who had his own relationship with A&M, went in and said, no, this is the album you get. You don't get any more. Just go work it. And then there was a disastrous um, fallout with uh, politically because A&M was taken over uh, right around that time, probably two weeks before the album came out. Oh, okay. um, suddenly, I think the president, that the guy who had been the president, was fired. Jerry Moss took over, and everything changed. Right. Still did it. Still did well, though. It sold. It still sold a million, yeah. which at that time was considered a failure, <laughs> which is kind of amazing now right. to think about that. But uh, yeah, it didn't sell three million, so everybody was disappointed. Uh, but yeah, it, it sold fine. And uh, honestly, I learned from my mistakes, and I felt that the f- next album after that, um, we just threw everything up in the air. Yeah. I mean, working with Mitchell Froom was great fun, and he had the exact opposite. Um, approach to record making. He and Chad Blake were just brilliant. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. That's what it always sounded like to me, that you... It, it sort of uh, seemed like maybe it was coming from the record company or, or you as well. You, uh, I have to stick with the sound that got me here. And then for the next album in 1992, you, it's exactly it. You just said, Let, let's have some fun. Let's we do threw open we the doors yeah. of all kinds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we threw open the doors. And it was, uh, in my analogy, it was sort of like working with a fine number two pencil uh, for Days of Open Hand and then getting to use big fat crayons for 99.9 to sonically. Right. You know, we could play, we could be. We could, uh, I don't know, Mitchell just had all these tricks and and fun things that he would do uh, off the cuff. He had a lot of experience, and I really appreciated that. The last time we talked was, was a couple years ago when, when your last album was out. And since then, uh, Tom's Diner has continued to take on <laughs> yet, yet yeah. more, more new lives. Fall Out Boy, Boy yeah. took it to the top 10 through centuries, which actually uh, brought you back to the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 
for the first time since the DNA remix in 1990, <laughs> yeah. 1991. Yeah. And then Britney Spears. Uh, yeah, it just keeps coming back and coming back. So uh, I, I welcome it. I think it's great. You like Fall Out Boys, what they did with it? Uh, I do. I do. I like them. I was already fans. I was fans of Panic at the Disco, and through Panic at the Disco, I discovered Fall Out Boy uh, way back, like 10 years ago. Um, so when they did it, it, it was I was tickled, and I was it was great to meet them and perform with them. I thought yeah. that was really fun. So did they? They just they didn't ask your permission first. They they did they actually, did. but yeah. no one on my team knew what FOB stood for. <laughs> uh, apparently, when they asked permission, uh, and it was like a team of writers already. So right. then they asked for it. I think this was back in the demo stages. So it was probably a year or two before okay. it actually hit. So when it hit, I was like, "What?" You know, one minute. Um, Things are going along as normal, and the next um, trending worldwide. So I was like, "What's up with that?" Uh, and then we we checked it out, and they had asked permission, and we had granted it. Yeah, yeah. And we had even worked out a deal with them already. Okay. So management started out going, "We're going to go after them," and then it was like, "Oh, we already made the deal." You don't perform centuries now in concert, do you? I don't. Although I was telling Jerry we should um, we should work up a we should work up a yeah. version, <laughs> which would be funny. And then uh, Giorgio Moroder and Britney Spears covered it. A little, little more traditional, or at a least traditional surprisingly to the, to traditional. The DNA when I yeah, I was surprised that Giorgio Moroder wouldn't have put his own stamp on it. Um, you know, and actually the guys from DNA sort of came tapping at the door a little bit, like, oh, you know, what do you think? You know, and I said, well, we'll have to see if it becomes a hit, and um, because they felt that you know it was their arrangement. So it, okay, right. uh, so they wanted to know if I would, you know, split some of the gigantic proceeds that we were that they were expecting, and I'm like, I don't know if it's going to go that way. Right. So it didn't. Yeah. Um. Uh. You you've said about Tom's Diner. I read this. You you said you can go in to Tom, Tom's restaurant. Yeah. Uh, on the Upper West Side, but uh, you don't really get any special treatment, even I though you made them so famous. <laughs> and you'd never know it from uh the they have like one clipping and the other ninety nine clippings are of Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> and. You know, the Seinfeld show, right. and I'm on their menu, but my name is misspelled. Uh, I'm called Susan Vega, and there I am. Uh, <laughs> and yes, I pay for everything. It's yeah. not like I get anything free. Um, after all the publicity, after all the publicity you've given them. Oh, well. And I still keep going there, uh, usually for the BBC. When the BBC comes to town, they're like, yeah. oh, let's go to Tom's Diner. And I'm like, okay. You know. But there are other diners on the Upper West Side, <laughs> and I, I'm familiar with all of them. When you go there, do people turn around and, and oh, sometimes do a head they turn do. I get people wait. like you know giving me the thumbs up through the window and yeah. stuff like that. So Seinfeld never asked you to, to be on the show. Some tie-in with since Tom's no, Diner. No, no. Although weirdly enough, I once saw Jerry Seinfeld standing in front of Tom's Diner. I thought yeah. I was dreaming, uh, <laughs> and I was just happened to be going by in a cab, like going uptown, and I was like, "Did I just see that for real?" I wanted to jump out and have my picture taken. I should have done a selfie, but I didn't. That could have been uh, Tom's Restaurant's advertising for the rest of their lives. Right? Yeah, missed opportunity. I know. Oh well, I have it in my mind. You, uh, you, you mentioned um, uh, the team of writers uh, on Centuries. Yeah. And what's interesting about um, your new album is uh, most of the tracks were co-written with Duncan Sheik. Yes. Who's uh, written uh, Tony Award-winning uh, Duncan Sheik for people who just think uh, barely breathing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, award-winning. Um, I, I brought this topic up a lot on the podcast. Uh, solo songwriting versus collaborating. Mm-hmm. Is one better? Yeah, there's, they, they must be different in the process. What's your take on what it's like for uh, just coming up with a song on your own versus sitting down with someone and trying to create something together? Well, 
Um, I should also point out that two of the songs are written by Michael Jeffrey Stevens back in the 1980s, and he's a kind of noted jazz composer, so I was working with him back then. Um, I myself feel that I am aware of my limitations as a musician. Um, I was never one of these people who could learn music theory. Uh, My ideas, I feel, are simple, mostly folk-based, mostly on the guitar. If I have a good idea, I repeat it three times. End of song. You know, I don't really struggle with it that I try you know to expand my horizons but really um working with someone like Duncan who is really gifted (laughs) uh is such a pleasure because I can give him all kinds of assignments I can say Duncan this is a song when Carson McCullers is dreaming about coming to New York and she's thinking of all the glamour and this is in the 1930s or 40s can you make it sound a little bit like the Lady is a Tramp, yeah. or like one of these great Rogers and, I think it's Rogers and Hart or Rogers and Hammerstein uh, type of, types of songs. And he'll go away and he'll come back with the melody for New York is My Destination, um, which was exactly what I had wanted. Or he can do that bittersweet longing feeling of Anne Marie, or he can do uh, Carson's Last Supper, which was, we, we needed a song to close the show, something that was kind of uplifting something that felt like a cross between a hymn, you know, a, a prayer for the unity of all mankind, but also a drinking song, something you could sing at the end of a few rounds of beers at the end of a night. So he went away and he came back with that, and it was perfect. So I think that takes a special kind of gift to be able to work to those kinds of specifications. Uh, and, of course, Harper Lee, I think, is perfect, what and, he did with that. And you wrote the lyrics and you wrote the music together? Is that uh, for the songs Well, the with, way with Duncan? Duncan, Duncan would sort of um, give me these weird, like sometimes minute-and-a-half furballs of song. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe them, just <laughs> sticky sort of bits that were, had pieces in it. So Jerry Leonard and I would take these bits of music, and Jerry would comb it apart, and he'd say, here's... Here's um, your verse. Here's something that could be a chorus. Here's a little tag. Here's, and so he would lay out a little chart for me to play with, and then I could fill it in like a crossword puzzle. And, and sometimes I'd say, okay, we're taking this bit here. We're going to put it up here and make an intro out of that. So Jerry and I would sort of bat it back and forth between, each, uh, between ourselves. I would usually write a melody over that, and then we'd present it to Duncan, and Duncan would change it and criticize or say, wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, so Duncan would take the final thing and say, okay, you know, this melody here is not working for me. We need to expand it. We need to um, change this or, you know, he'd tinker with it and make it just what he wanted it to be. So in this album, we're coming up with melodies that I never would have thought of myself. He, uh, I tend to, my voice, singing voice tends to sit fairly low, especially these days. And he got it out of that range and forced me to sing way up high. So those notes in Anne-Marie and Lover Beloved, I mean, I really, I was like, are you kidding me? Why would you want me to sing all the way up there? Most people tell me to stop doing that when they hear me do it. And he's like, no, no, there's something about it. It's really, there's all this glamour when you sing up, up. It's very vulnerable. So I followed, he's very musical. He hears music in a whole different way than I do, so... That may be more information than you're looking for, but that's uh, that's what it's like to work with Duncan Sheik. It's yeah. just fantastic. Have you been friends for a long time? We've known each other um, for about 20 years now. He opened for me uh, on a tour when I guess he was 24 and I was 36. 
I remember it really clearly because um, at that moment in time, I was newly married with a child, and I felt very mature. So he seemed like this little kid. Um, and he kind of, I remember being on the stage, and he came up to me during the sound check of the show. And um, I remember thinking, oh, he's such a kid. And, and now we feel more like contemporaries. But right. uh, back then, I, I was like, oh, he's really, he's really cute and young. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the background vocalists on the album, I noticed the name, Ruby Froome. Ruby Froome, yes. She's terrific. I mean, she's such <laughs> a good singer. And she's musically not like me. She, yeah. Musically, she's more like her dad, Mitchell Froome. Yeah. Um, she can read anything, transpose anything. She can, uh, you know, she's, she can throw anything at her. She can do it. She can sing background vocals all day long. Um, so, yeah, there she is singing on We of Me and a few of the other songs. So yeah. it wasn't awkward in the studio where you have to uh, maybe in some ways direct and, and uh, you don't have to say this isn't good enough? or any of those Not awkward? at all. No. no, in fact, usually it's the other way around. Usually she's looking at me going, you really couldn't hear that note. <laughs> and I'm like, no, Ruby, I couldn't hear that note. <laughs> but no, she's terrifically gifted. And uh, running your own label is, is going well now that you're uh, now that you have more experience. Well, it is this? surprisingly. Um, it took a while to get off the ground, and for a while, I even forgot that I was doing it to try and make a profit. I mean, uh, I tend to make any sort of cash flow that I have from touring. Um, so last year, a check came in the mail, and I was like, "What's this for?" And it was like, oh, it's amanuensis. <laughs> and I was really shocked. It was, uh, it was a nice one, you know. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Seven years in, not too bad. Um, so I think we've got, uh, at this point, all the merch that I sell at the shows are all amanuensis productions. Um, so we're, we're doing pretty well. Is it, uh, do you ever get frustrated when you look at maybe uh, the place count uh, on YouTube and you hear uh, some of the streaming services and, and it, it's uh, pretty uh, clear at this point that artists aren't making a whole lot of money, uh, to put it nicely, on, on streaming. It is frustrating. Um, some of the reason I started to get a profit is because I am my own record label on those streaming services. Um, as an artist, I don't make anything to speak of, but as the record company, I'm, it, it all feeds into a stream that is actually helpful. Um, So that has worked out in my favor, surprisingly. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. When when Luca was on the charts, when, when Tom's Diner first became a hit, were you were you aware of everything going on in the charts? Were you watching or you heard about it through management or it didn't mean that much to oh, you? Oh, I love the charts. Um, I, uh, when I was a kid, I listened to Casey Kasem and yeah. he would do the top 40 charts every Sunday. And I used to listen to it religiously. Um, in fact, when I think in 1987, Rolling Stone asked me, like, what was the most memorable memory of that year and I said just here in Casey Kasem say that and they sent me a cassette tape of all of his introductions ah. which I thought was amazing um, yeah I was thrilled by the chart success it was something I had never anticipated I always thought of myself as an album kind of artist never thought of myself as a single singles kind of artist um, but it was thrilling it was thrilling to be uh, that successful there was you know no question about it um and I, I'm still proud of that era. I don't consider it my defining moment, but I am proud of it. And did you think when you had written 
Luca and recorded it. Did you ever think it was a hit single or you maybe you were proud of it but didn't think it would work commercially in the 80s? I never thought of it as a single. No? Ever. Uh, no, I thought of it as a kind of private, quiet song about... A, I thought of it as a Lou Reed song. I did not see it as any kind of single. The one who really saw its potential was my manager, Ron Fierstein. And he heard it and he talked to me about it and he said, I think that song can be a hit. Not just a single, but a hit. And I said, are you kidding? I said, no. I said, no, no, no. And he goes, no, it's a song about an issue. And most songs these days are about, you know, nonsense. And right. we, you know, we need more songs about issues, about social issues. And I f- disagreed with him. I said, uh, I don't think songs really change anything. And we had a very heated argument, which we did all, all the time. Uh, in the end, he was right. And he produced that song. We worked on the production for two years to make it radio-worthy. So anyone who says it's a fluke doesn't know all the work (laughs) that went into that production. Um, And I'm not kidding. I mean, the arrangement, the uh, key that we put it in, the production, the mix. uh, We played it on all these different uh, systems, in a car, in a cassette tape, CD, uh, you name it. Uh, You know, huge, beautiful, hi-fi speakers. Um, that song was worked to be a single, and it was. It it ended up being what it was. Yeah, you can you can hear that. That's that's cool to hear that because it's it, it's to me the, the quintessential pop folk song. And I guess maybe that's why it's tough uh, to to get that kind of sound in, in other songs. You, you have to work two years on it apparently on the one song. Yeah, and that's the thing that both Tom Steiner and Luca have in common is that someone, not always me, paid careful attention to the production. And worked on it. So I don't know how long DNA worked on uh, Tom's Diner, but somebody had a vision for that song. Probably um, Nick Bat did the actual remix, but Neil Slateford, I think, was the sort of marketing genius behind that duo. Um, so I think he's the one who had the idea to put in the da 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 as the riff, right. as the hook. Uh, and that, of course, was the, the genius of, of their uh, version of it. So they worked that production. They thought about it, and they really they worked it. So neither of those songs were actually a fluke. I guess the, the trend we're sensing here is uh, nothing comes easy for success, and, and the whole uh, all the different versions of the Carson McCullers work you're doing, it kind of goes back 30 years as well. Nothing, <laughs> nothing simple, is it, Suzanne? Uh, I don't think so. Nothing, not if it's worthwhile. Um, I mean, I do these things because I love doing it. And uh, ultimately, that has to be your guide. Do you love doing it? Do you love doing it enough? Even if no one in the world listened, would you still do it? Um, and that's sort of my rule of thumb. And uh, in performing now, you still love touring as much as, much as you ever I love touring. Did? Yeah, it's sort of uh, what I fall back on. I've been performing live since I was 16 years old. Uh, it's... I found out in my late 20s that it's actually in my blood, that my grandparents were touring musicians. Oh. I never knew them. I, as I said, I never knew my father until I was in my late 20s. But my grandfather was a trumpet player. My grandmother was a drummer. And they met while touring on the road. Uh. And so I thought I had chosen this lifestyle you know, of my own free will. And guess what? Not really. Yeah. But uh, I, I still love it. It's still like playtime to me. Is it different? It's obviously different when you're a new artist and you're trying to win over the crowd and then deeper into your career. Everyone knows who they're coming to see. They they know all the hits. Is it easier in that sense or is it harder because you, you still have to make you still have to make it worth it for them? Or is it just you, you do what you do when you get up there? Oh, I always think about it. Um, 
it's been great all the way through. I mean, in the very beginning, I didn't really think about how to please an audience. I just thought, I have these songs, I need to sing them. I stuck myself up on a stage and did just that, not always successfully. Um, eventually, I learned how to present myself, how to make it somewhat entertaining to talk to an audience and all that stuff. Um, these days, I try and get a careful balance. I do the old songs that I know they're going to want to hear. I talk to them about the new stuff so they're not surprised by it. Um, and we work it in in a way that makes sense. And it's been great. I get really good feedback. And I, I look at all the feedback on Facebook and yeah. Twitter and all that stuff. Enough. Yeah, I just keep put my cast my eye over it. You're not see. afraid of message reports? Oh, you know, sometimes I see this and that. But uh, I just delete them. Bing! <laughs> That's what that delete button is for. Are, are you a Twitter blocker? Do you ever block anybody? Oh, from time to time. Yeah. Depending. Most of the time I don't have to. I mean, most of the time what you put out is what you get back. If you put out a lot of positive stuff, you know, people kind of – and if some, you know, if someone's just being stupid, I just ignore it. And if they're really hating, then I block them. Well, I, I, I don't know why anyone would. Your, your catalog of music is, is just amazing over 30-plus years. Thanks. You've done this great music and really ahead of your time in, uh, in many ways too <laughs> with uh, the, the, the folk Americana movement that's hitting uh, new levels now. You were doing that in the 80s when, when no one else was, so you're, you're a trailblazer. Thank you. And uh, the new album, Lover, Beloved, Songs from an Evening, with Carson McCullers, a, uh, already on Billboard's charts. Congratulations uh, on that, Suzanne. When, whenever the new, uh, the official version of the play comes out next year. Yeah. That'll be. That's what uh, we're expecting. It'll, there'll be an announcement probably uh, March or April. Okay. Yeah. And are you already uh, planning a, a new album? Uh, I am, yeah. I've got all kinds of uh, titles, riffs, verses written. All kinds of stuff sort of bubbling under there. So uh, it's not going to be another seven years. It'll be maybe two or three. <laughs> That's what we're used to now. <laughs> That's right. Got to keep up that production schedule. All right. Go, go put on your snood. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for coming on the Charpy Podcast. Thank you. Virginia Woolf, she leaves me cold. I recognize the genius, but I'm twice as bold. Say, than Hemingway, Lord knows, compared to Faulkner, I say it in a better way. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.